Well, good morning. Let's start our morning with some prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that we can worship you. That as your church, Lord, wherever we are right now, God, that uh, we are worshiping the one true God. And Lord, as our members of our church are hurting this morning, we, we pray for the Dudar family in the home going of Karen's mom, Doris Clark, Lord, would you be with them today and comfort them, Lord? And I pray that as we open your word today, God, that our hearts are ready to receive it in a way that doesn't just hear it, but Lord, that changes us. So Lord, that I, I ask that you bless our morning together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, happy Valentine's Day. It is Valentine's Day, and Valentine's Day is the day of love. Now, I think we throw the word love around a lot these days. You might tell somebody that you loved that meal that you just ate the other day. Maybe it's a book you've just read, and you loved reading that book. I don't know, maybe it's the love that you have for your favorite football team, the one that defied all the odds and won the Super Bowl last week in a very decisive and overpowering manner, but that's just an example. Another example that we have of love these days, well, let's see if you can figure out what I'm talking about. I'm going to read you a couple of titles, and I'm curious to see if you can figure out what they are, what they have in common. Now, as I read these, I want you to know that they are 100% real. I didn't make them up, but you got to figure out what they are. So here they are. A dash of love, autumn dreams, hearts of spring, in the key of love. How about royally ever after, love at first glance, and of course, my personal favorite, you're baking me crazy. That's not baking, that's bacon, like the meat. Have you figured it out yet? Well, these are all titles that come to us from the people of Hallmark. And they're presented as love stories. The Hallmark movie phenomenon is one that honestly I just don't understand. But that's because from what I know about them, they're all kind of the same. Basically, if you've never seen a Hallmark movie, let me break it down for you. Basically, what happens is a big city career person who's usually a baker, a lawyer, an advertising executive, a TV talk show host, or maybe even royalty from a made-up country called something like Cheeselvania, return home or visit a small town. Now, this small town is obviously in the middle of a seasonal festival, you know, something like the Summer Festival of Lights, maybe a winter ball, maybe the Spring Arts and Crafts Fair, or the Autumn Pumpkin Pie Contest. And while they're there, something dramatic happens. Like during the Pumpkin Pie Festival, the Nutmeg Factory breaks down. 
or during the Arts and Crafts Festival. The antique store that has been sponsoring it for years is about to go through foreclosure, or even worse, the ranch that the person lived on for five generations of their family has built something six inches over the property line, which happens to be adjacent to a big, money-hungry hotel conglomerate who in this small town wants to build a 750-room bed and breakfast. Now, of course, the person that has come back to the small town has all the skills necessary to fix these problems, and all of this is going on, but then they meet an unsuspecting ranch hand, baking assistant, local teacher, or perhaps their grandmother's personal care worker, and it seems that they're about to fall in love. But wait again, because tragedy ensues. Because these people have all been involved with somebody before, who they were in a bad relationship before, it was clearly a person that was not meant for them, but they come back, and somewhere along the lines, a misunderstanding happens. Well, the city slicker says, this is just too hard. I'm going to head back, and I'm going to focus on what needs to be focused on, my career. But it's all going to be okay, because there's a mutual friend that we met once at the beginning of the movie, who knows both parties, who fixes everything. The person goes to the event and the festival, and they see the other person that they've been talking to, their eyes meet, and they embrace with a kiss. Of course, the snow falls right in that moment. It's dreamy, isn't it? And that's basically it. I've spoiled most of them for you, I think. And for those of you who are thinking to yourself that I know just a little bit too much about Hallmark movies, I need to remind you. I live with a wife and two daughters. So this description is really just from me passing by and, and hearing some things that they're talking about. But these movies have become some of the most popular movies in the world. But you know what I find interesting is that there's never any conversation about what happens after that first kiss. See, this love story is really just a story of how they met. But what happened? Did the city slicker really quit their job? Did they really move back to their small hometown? Did the 12 people that we saw on camera at the pumpkin pie festival actually eat all 300 pies that we saw? Did that home baker actually just become the queen of Cheeselvania? I'm just saying, when love is depicted this way, it misrepresents what love actually is. Because love is so much more than just finding someone that you're attracted to. It's something that's long haul. And I think for those of us who have been married or in relationships for a long time, we can attest to that. We can definitely agree there's more to it than that. So this morning on Valentine's Day, I thought that maybe we would shift our focus away from the sugary sweet depiction of love that the culture gives us a lot. And let's turn our attention and embrace and consider love from the perspective of how God intended it to be. And I'd like to suggest to you this morning that there are three ways that I see that marriage reflects some different aspects of God's character. But I'm also going to point out that there is a lot in these texts that apply to every follower of Jesus. So married or unmarried, track along here. Because there's a lot of good stuff in these principles for us. But our first point, my first point today, is that marriage by God's, by God's design reflects God's love for us. As we look in our Bible, we're going to find that marriage is mentioned very early on 
It's in Genesis chapter 2, which is where we can turn right now. And in Genesis chapter 2, and before, I, before we get there, I want to just point out that Genesis chapter 2 is unique because Genesis 1 and 2 come before Genesis 3. That should be obvious, right? Of course, Genesis 1 and 2 come before Genesis 3. But that's important. It's an important thing to note because it's in Genesis 3 that we see sin enter the world. That is where the fall of man occurs. And most things that we read about after Genesis 3 is in response to the fall of man. But marriage was instituted by God before sin entered the world. So why? Why was it, why did God institute marriage? Well, look at Genesis 2.18. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. See that? God cares and loves for, loved Adam so much that he recognized that Adam was not yet equipped to do what he needed to do. And out of love, he decided, he set out to provide Adam a perfect partner. Let's go to verse 20, the second part there. It says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So after considering all of creation... There was nothing that had been created up to that point that was going to give Adam what he needed. So God gave Adam a wife. Let's read in verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. It's important to note here that Eve was created from Adam's rib, but that doesn't make her creation any less equal than the creation of Adam. Eve and Adam were created equally. They have different roles and they're distinct in what they're to do, but they're created equally. In fact, it, it, she came from Adam's rib. And as one commentator writes, she wasn't made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. See, this was an act of love for Adam. God provided him with companionship and with a suitable helper. Okay, now the word suitable here doesn't mean pretty good or adequate. It's meant in a manner, it's not meant that it's like, okay, it was suitable, perfect. It was, she was crafted to be the perfect complement to her husband. They were going to work together in tandem, united as one. And we can see that in verse 24. It says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. She's created as the perfect complement. And verse 25 says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That last verse, they felt no shame. That's the reminder. This happened before sin came into the world. It's a beautiful story. Certainly one that I think is better than a Hallmark movie. But we have to remember that this marriage began in a perfect state between two people who had not yet been impacted by a sinful nature. 
And while this is the intention for our marriages as well, our spouse was designed to be a complement for us too. We are, because of the fallen nature, broken. And I know that there are times that Susan would look at me and think, compliment, yes, perfect. Probably not. And I would gather that's the same for most of us. In fact, I did a little experiment this week. And I told a few people that I was going to be uh, speaking on marriage this week. And I said, I would like to do a case study on the perfect marriage. And I would like to use their marriage as the example. I did get a lot of reaction from that. But I think the most common was this noise. It was, um, pfft. yeah, right. Yeah, right. Because we're not perfect. I actually had one person who just broke out laughing, just shook their head and laughed some more. So we're going to ask a few tough questions this morning. And the tough question that we're going to start with is this. If God created marriage perfectly, then why aren't marriages perfect? Well, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, that perfect marriage prototype, it was damaged. And now, while we still complement each other as spouses, we aren't perfect. And in Genesis chapter 3, we're told of the first sin, and we're told that God sentences the guilty parties, and we find out that there is going to be a problem in the relationship between husband and wife. And we're going to see that in Genesis 3.16 as he sentences the woman. He says, to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now the first part of that verse is pretty self-explanatory, although I can't relate Childbirth is going to be very painful. I had a really bad kidney stone once. I was told it was close, but I can't relate. But that second part, the woman's desire will be for her husband and he will rule over you. We got to understand what that means. Because remember, men and women have distinct roles and functions. And the roles, we're going to unpack this in a little bit, that were meant in God's design were about to become flipped on their head and were going to create this conflict that was going to happen. The desire for her husband is actually referring to how the wife is going to want to take the role of the husband and the husband is just going to abdicate that. He's going to say, yep, it's yours. And that's going to cause a lot of of problems because it's outside of the way that God designed it. Another, commentary, another commentator writes, sin has turned the harmonious system of God-ordained roles into distasteful struggles of self-will. See, at that point, God could have just gotten rid of marriage. He, he could have just dissolved it completely. But remember, it was instituted before, so there's still a purpose for it, and that's that God's love for us was not to be alone. He knew that we couldn't be alone. But now, we're going to need to rely on him more to do it. And the fact that marriage exists at all, well, that's an amazing testimony of God's love for us. 
So we've got to remember that while marriage is created to be perfect, we are told that there is going to be conflict. And in that conflict is where we have to protect and we have to be very aware because the results on marriage could be catastrophic. But that's why it's important to remember that your spouse was created to be your complement, not your enemy. So when you're experiencing conflict, you have to remember that, that even when it's that really bad argument, even when, it's, when, when you're feeling so hurt by what's happened, your partner, your spouse was never created to be your adversary. Now, they, and, and you and me, by the way, might be exhibiting sinful behavior and behavior that stems from the fall of man, but they've been crafted by God to, to be that, that compliment. But in order for this to work, each partner has to operate in the manner that God had intended, that marriage was intended to be. And just as God gave Adam a helper, and we're broken we have been given another helper. We've been given the Holy Spirit. As followers of Christ, as followers of Jesus, we have been empowered with the Holy Spirit. But we need to listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. We need to pay attention and be obedient. And in our sinful nature, we're going to try and fight, and we do, there's a battle going on internally. Our minds, we know that what we're doing, we know what we're supposed to do, but we just don't do it. You can read about that. Paul writes about that in Romans 7. But we're, we've, we've not been left alone either. And there's more. Because God has provided a church family as well. We have people around us because it's not good for us to be alone. And the spiritual gifts that they bring and the things that they bring to us are, are brought into the body of Christ to edify each other and to build each other up. And it ensures that we're not alone. And marriage ensures that we are not alone. It's just another way that God does that. But it's a reflection of his love for us. And the care that he has for us. So that's the first thing. Our marriages reflect God's love for us. The second characteristic of God that is reflected in marriage is his love for the church. Now as we move along here, let's turn to the book of Ephesians and chapter 5. And we're going to be in, in chapter 5. And in these verses, we're going to see such a beautiful picture painted. It's a, it's a beautiful picture that's painted of the relationship that we see in marriage and how it reflects God's love for his church. When the, the husband and the wife, when they live out the distinct roles in perfect unity, it's amazing. It's why it's, the church is called the bride of Christ. We see the marriage uh, analogy brought right there, but let's start in verse 22. It says, wives, submit to yourselves or submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay. Notice the comparisons. 
You're going to see comparisons in each one of these verses. Verse 22, wives submit to your husbands as you do the Lord. The husband, in verse 23, is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. There's that reflection. Uh, Verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. And then in verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church. See, our marriages are to reflect two things, submission and sacrifice. And the distinct roles that each spouse has to play in that is going to embody one of those two characteristics. It's part of God's perfect design. And because of that, we have to remember, marriage works best when it is operated in the way that God intended it. Marriage was instituted and created by God. He gets to tell us then how to do it correctly. But because of our natural desire to rebel against God, it's often easier said than done, isn't it? Well, Start with submission. I mean, submission in this context is not oppressive. That's really important to remember. Another author writes, the submission that we read about in verse 22 is not the husband's to command, but it's for the wife to willing, willingly and lovingly offer. See, it should never be a burden. It should never be a cross to bear because it mirrors the joy that we should have as we submit to Christ. In light of what he's done for us, we as followers of Jesus should exhibit submission to him as an act of love. It's meant to be a living example of how we, the church, are to live in submission to our Savior. It fulfills the role that God established at creation. We've been talking about the church and how we want to operate under submission to what God has told us to do. This is the reflection of that. And the husband in God's design for marriage is not autonomous either, by the way. He's not reporting to nobody. He's not answering to nobody. The husband is called to love his wife as Christ does the church. And that is in a manner of a, a, that is sacrificial. Because is there anything, is there any greater example of sacrifice than what Jesus did for his church on the cross? And as genuine followers of Jesus, it should be our goal to follow the example that is set by the one that we call Lord. And that means that as husbands, we have to live in a way that is completely selfless and sacrificial. And in the living out of this, we see the relationship of Christ and his church on full display. As husband and wife lovingly interact with each other in a manner that glorifies God. And when the husband and wife both start to live in ways that reflect God's design, it's going to feel countercultural. And it should feel countercultural. It should be. You know, I look, there are so many secular books out there. I just went and I checked a couple out. And I found a few things. I I just looked up marriage help. First thing I noticed that there is a lot of divorce guides that come up. I don't think that's marriage help. The second one I found, which I thought was interesting, was it takes one to tango. How I rescued my marriage with no help from my spouse and how you can too. And in the description of another one I found, I actually, it, it, 
explains how the chemistry of the brain works and then suggests ways that you can trigger chemical reactions in your spouse to make them think that they're happy. That's crazy. That's completely against and away from what God has called from us. See, that's saying focus on you. God says focus on me and then reflect that out to others. And I know you can't judge a book by its cover. And I didn't read these books, I'm just saying. Because when we do this, when we focus on others, when we exemplify that relationship, it actually serves as a witness to those around us because it's unavoidably attractive to other people. Why wouldn't it be unattractive? Why would it be unattractive to other people? It's going to be so attractive to other people because it's how God designed it. They look at the marriage, marriages like this, and they begin to wonder, why doesn't my marriage look like that? That leads us to another tough question, though. Because why, then, aren't our marriages always an example to follow? Well, the answer, again, is that we are broken people. And a good thing to regularly check and regularly seek and self-examine is your own motivation in the relationship. Is your motivation focused inward? What can I get out of it? Or outward? What can I give? Are you more concerned about how you benefit or how you benefit your spouse? And, and by the way, I think there's a real danger in how we answer this question. Because sometimes our, our default is to say, before I self-examine me, I'm going to self-examine my spouse. That's not the purpose of this. This is about our involvement, what we have. And good news, if you are both doing this, if you are both checking this out, God is looking to seek to reveal things to your spouse and he's really, really good at it. He's way better than we are. But we have to remember that our marriage bears witness to the world. It tells them, are, are you motivated by this internal or the external? Because if you're motivated by the internal, you're not really worried about everybody else. You're not worried about how your marriage can reflect that. You're, if you're thinking about other people, it could have eternal results and eternal consequences. And again, that extends beyond marriage. I mean, we should be doing that in everything that we do. Marriage is just a way. But, you know, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Marriage is another way that we do this. And when we consider that our marriage was created to reflect God's love for his church, we must be intentional now in how we are representing that relationship. Think about this. You and your, your marriage is an ambassador to the world of how Christ and of Christ and his relationship to the church. That's a responsibility that we need to pay close attention to. And I, to me, it's huge because it makes marriage more than something just that you do. It makes it multi-layered. It gives it a purpose, a, a, a more purpose. It, it's many purposes. This is one of them. But knowing that it's a reflection of God's love for his church makes the need for us to live it out 
That's an incredible responsibility that we should feel a burden for as we examine ourselves. So there, there's the first two things. Our marriages reflect God's love for us and they reflect God's love for his church. Finally, I suggest that marriage reflects God's love for our growth and our sanctification. And as we read Ephesians 5, we'll go into verse 26. Actually, we'll start in verse 25 again. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. We read that in Genesis 2. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Now, you can see still the comparisons of the relationship with Christ and his church, but we know that as followers of Christ, our goal is to, through the power of the, of the Holy Spirit, grow in holiness, grow in our likeness to Christ, and this is a work in progress. It doesn't just happen. It's not we're saved and we're sanctified. No, it's, 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 it's in progress. That's why they call it progressive sanctification. And God uses marriages in a way to bring about this kind of growth. As each partner grows in the Lord, we grow, the relationship will grow stronger because our obedience changes the more that we are like Christ. The way that we submit and sacrifice falls more in line with God's design. And actually, as each person reflects on their marriage, they should be able to look back and think to themselves, how has my marriage made me more like Christ? And sometimes that's in the good times, and other times that's in the bad time. James chapter 1 tells us to consider it pure joy when you experience trials of all kinds. So sometimes that's going to come through the, the, the good times, and sometimes it's going to come through the bad. But how is God shaping you to become more like Christ? And one of the most important things that needs to happen is that you have to understand where your source of love is coming from. What is the primary place that you find your love? Because we have to find our source of love from Christ alone. And that's just because when we try to find it from uh, our spouse— or our spouse tries to find it from us, we are bound to be disappointed because broken people cannot replace the love that is given by a perfect God. And let me explain this a little more. Now, when our spouse becomes the source of our love, that might work for a short time. But eventually, what's going to happen is our spouse is going to do something that doesn't meet our expectation or that is going to just out and out hurt us. And when that happens, the source of love that we have from them gets cut off, broken, and shattered. 
And now all we're left with is the hurt that we've received. And so what do we do in return? Well, we do something back that encompasses the hurt that we have. And so we send it back often in hurt. This is where a lot of the conflict comes from. But when Christ is our source of love, and we know that that source can never be broken, then when something happens this way, it changes our perspective. So when I'm hurt here, my source of love is from God. And so what do I do? Well, rather than being angry, I can actually forgive. Rather than, than being disappointed here, I can find ways to pray for my spouse. Rather than finding value or finding our love from broken people, we've got to find it from the one source that we know is perfect and won't cut off. So when we feel hurt by our spouse, we can look to God and we can understand that that has never been broken. And when we place our spouse in that position, we're doing three things. The first thing that we're doing is we are totally setting our spouse up to fail. They couldn't possibly deliver what it is that we're looking for them to deliver. The second thing that we're doing is we're setting ourselves up for a great disappointment. And the third thing that we're doing is we are taking this person and we are trying to put them where God rightfully deserves to be. And that is not the place that we want to find ourselves in. See, as we press into God and to his leading, we become more like him. We get to actually, we get to actually um, shine and reflect his love onto them. It's such a big difference. And as we grow in the likeness of Christ, we become better equipped for our marriages as well because we start to see things through the filter of the gospel. As Christ has forgiven me, so I must forgive. As I submit to Christ and his leading, so too I must submit to my husband. As I have received the sacrifice that Christ has made for me, so too I must sacrifice for my wife. And in all of this, we become more like Jesus. And that leads us to our last tough question. So why can it sometimes feel like we're just surviving together and we're not growing? You ever been in a canoe with someone? When you both have the same goal in mind and you're both on the same page and you paddle, the boat moves twice as fast across the water. But when you're not on the same page, when you have different goals and different aims, it doesn't matter how hard you paddle the canoe, it just spins in circles. It is a lot of effort with minimal movement forward. And it's important to remember that, yeah, we're individually being sanctified. We're individually growing. But that doesn't mean that you're both pursuing the same things. You have to get on the same spiritual page. How do you do that? Here's a few ways. Are you praying together? Because when you pray together, it reveals a lot about what's on your spouse's heart. 
Are you praying for each other? Because when you do, it reveals a lot about what's in your heart about your spouse. Are you in the word together? Because when you are, God reveals his plan for you and your, in, in, in regards to your spouse and into your marriage. Are you prioritizing attending church services, uh, being in a DC together, serving together? And if you are, is it just going through the motions? Or are you actually experiencing these things in this time together? Because when you do that, that's where you find true intimacy with your partner. That's where you find true intimacy with your spouse. Because you're both aligning yourself in the will of God. These are all things that can help ensure that your focus on a couple is God. And as both, you both fix your eyes on becoming more Christ-like, you're going to see you're going to see the relationship just get stronger. So remember that your primary focus is to personally grow in your likeness of Christ. And remember that good marriages are the product of sanctified people, not the other way around. Good marriages don't sanctify your spouse. Sanctified spouses improve your marriage. That's why it's got to be sanctification, that growth, that becoming in the likeness of Christ needs to be the goal for every follower of Jesus. And for those in marriages, our relationship with our spouse, that can help propel that growth. It's an amazing reflection of God's love of, for our personal growth. And it matters a lot to God as well. And I got to tell you that when you see, even when you, when, I, when you see your spouse being sanctified through these things and you see them becoming more Christ-like and you realize that God is working and for your marriage, it's an incredible thing to watch. And is it going to be hard? Yes, it is going to be hard. Is it going to be frustrating at times? It's absolutely going to be frustrating. But what better way to celebrate Valentine's Day than to reorient our marriages and ourselves, remembering that they reflect God's love for us, that they are representative and they reflect God's love for his church and that they reflect God's care for our growth and his love for our growth. If you're watching this with your spouse right now, make a commitment together that today, not what, it's not, Valentine's Day today isn't going to be about what the media wants it to be. Valentine's Day today is going to be what God wants it to be. A reflection in our marriages and through our marriage, he is for it. He is for it. And you do it not just for the sake of yourselves, but we do it for the sake of our Savior and our King. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for marriage and I thank you for the relationships that you, you bring us into, Lord. Thank you that you have poured your love out on us and that just through, just through our relationships within our, mar within our marriages, God, we have a responsibility and we have an, an, an ability, Lord, to grow into your likeness, to reflect your love for the church, God, to experience in a very unique way the love that you have for, for us. God, I do pray for our marriages. I pray that uh, for the ones that are broken, Lord, you're a God that restores. And so, Lord, that is your intention. And I pray for each partner, God, that they'll take it seriously. Lord, I pray that, that through the power of your word, through the power of prayer, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you will continue to transform us 
into your likeness. God, today is the day that we celebrate love and there is no greater love than the love that you gave us. So Lord, I just ask that you keep that in the front of our minds today, Lord, and throughout the next few days, Lord, taking seriously what your word has told us. And we pray all of these things in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.